The Bible, a divinely inspired book so glorious and yet so debated these days that we decided to record another episode on this essential topic. In the 1820s, Thomas Jefferson completed his redacted version of the four Gospels he called The Philosophy and Morals of Jesus. Although it wasn't published in his lifetime, the Jefferson Bible would become a popular example of an alarming trend in post-Enlightenment hermeneutics, cutting and pasting with the Word of God. According to Jefferson and other readers and scholars since, the Bible is an imperfect text. There might be truth in its pages, but it needs a modern lens, or additions or subtractions to purify it or to make sense of its ancient obscure meaning. There are hard things to understand in the Bible, they say. Supernatural events that are difficult to believe. So does the Bible need to change? Or do we? Politics, technology, identity, power, science. Everything seems to be changing. So why not faith? This is Christianity and Liberalism, a podcast based on the book by Jay Gresham Machen. In this show, we'll be discussing a modern-day church in crisis and engaging with Machen's classic text to see what lessons we can learn and apply 100 years later. The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is gone and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis, the lamb's dripping wrist This is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is gone and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL, with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell When it comes to arguments between Christians, it's generally helpful to begin with one question. What do you believe about your Bible? If 2,000 years of church history have shown us anything, it's that it's not unusual for Christians to interpret some passages differently. But this question peels that back a little further. What do you believe about the Bible itself? Is it the perfect word of God? a reliable source of answers to hard questions? Or is it a historical document, like anything else, of some value, but likely corrupted and certainly not applicable to modern life? To get some clarity on these issues, I called up an old colleague, Dr. Greg Beale. Greg is a professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Dallas and has authored a number of notable books and commentaries including the recent book, Union with the Resurrected Christ. I began our conversation by asking Greg about his experience with Machen's Christianity and liberalism and how he's seen the effect of the sharp distinctions drawn in that book. I don't think I read it until actually (laughs) I was at Westminster Theological Seminary. (laughs) (laughs) And Carl Truman, uh, I think it was being republished by Erdman's and so Carl Truman gave me a copy and so I, uh, I, t- I took it on some airplane rides and read it and uh, was uh, really edified by it. I think the, um, first of all, I wish I could write as clearly and concise, concisely as Machen. <laughs> and uh, secondly, I think it really did impress upon me in, in a more pristine way uh, it's nice to get these pristine formulations like Machen did in the book, uh, you know, basically arguing, hey, what's the difference between liberalism and true Christianity? And it's supernaturalism versus naturalism. And I thought mm-hmm. that was, you know, he's, he's he, he has a great ability to summarize. So, so that yeah. was, that enforced that upon me. So, yeah, I'm glad I read it. Um, he is, uh, what he says is true for all times and places. This is his, uh, thesis on supernaturalism versus naturalism. is just something that somebody can pick up now. And it's just as true now as it was then, I, I think. So, um, you know, let's face it. We know, uh, biblical scholars who cut things out of the gospels and 
a lot of the reason underlying that is the, an anti-supernatural presupposition. Mm-hmm. Together, mm-hmm. I think, with uh, a desire not to be held accountable by what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. But um, but, I, but that, I think that's the lasting significance of it. It's just put quite simply, it's uh, its message is just as applicable today as it was uh, at his time. Some years ago, I was uh, having a conversation with some liberal theologians. And uh, they asked me, do you believe uh, that uh, Paul thought, that he truly thought that if a Jew in his time did not trust in Jesus, death and resurrection, uh, if if a Jew rejected Jesus, that he would go to hell? And I didn't pause. I said, yes, that they were absolutely... um, uh, it was like I, I had insulted them. I mean, they, they, they were appalled at, at this. So I think that's, you know, uh, the scripture is true and uh, Jesus is true. And if you mm-hmm. reject him, you will go to hell. And mm-hmm. in fact, I think uh, I've heard it said, I've never checked it out. I don't know if you have, Dave, but that Jesus spoke more on judgment than anything else. So mm-hmm. this true. is uh, another reason that some people might not Uh, they would be very selective about what they quote from Jesus. At the foundation of this belief that we can trust the words of Christ is the doctrine of plenary inspiration that we've talked about in a previous episode. I asked Greg how he explains the inspiration of Scripture to his students. Yes, plenary inspiration. Plenary means full. So it means the Bible is fully inspired. And um, one of the best books on this is by B.B. Warfield, uh, The Authority and Inspiration of Scripture, or the Bible, I can't remember which. Um, And uh, one of the passages that he analyzes very well is 2 Timothy chapter 3, which explains uh, plenary inspiration. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, my my translation I'm reading says inspired by God. I don't like that because it sounds like God's breathing in or something. Uh, The word there is theopneustos, as Orfield says, and all scripture is um, God-breathed. In other words, it has to do with breathing out, Mm. and the effect of his breath is the scripture. Mm. So um, that's the idea. It's, it's sort of like a, a, a you know very faint, <laughs> uh, mundane illustration. Maybe on a cold day, you get close to your car window and you breathe on it and you see fog. Well, with God, when he breathes out, it's not fog. It's the effect is clear revelation. And so all scripture is the breathed out word of God. And this is why Passages, for example, like Romans 3, 2 says that to Israel was given the logia to theu, the words, some translations say the oracles of God. And I th- I take that as uh, it may be a plenary genitive, but at the very least, it's a genitive of source, mm-hmm. uh, the words that come from God. Mm-hmm. That's really where we get the word theology, theos. Mm-hmm. Plus logos, and uh, it's a what? What is theology? It's it's the study of God's word. It's a word from God. So that passage is, is a good one to remember because it's saying all Scripture is God breathed, and therefore on that basis, the passage goes on and says it's profitable. But for what? Well, for teaching, for reproof. Now we get into experience, mm-hmm. correction training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So you you get the fact of the inspiration of, of Scripture. All of it is inspired. And then we see its uh, result or its purpose. And part of that purpose has to do with, with experience, experience of being reproved, being corrected, being and, and becoming repentant, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, w- when you talked about the translation of 2 Timothy 3.16, you said you didn't like a translation. So how does inerrancy relate to the actual 
Bible that's been translated for people yes. today? Um, well, we, we, we do have uh, uh, what amounts to the original manuscripts. We have over 5,000 manuscripts, and we have some that date back even to uh, part early part of the second century. By 200 AD, uh, we have the whole New Testament, if you can put it together with the manuscripts. And so we're not certain of all of it, but if you have a pie chart and you put a black thin line in it, that's what we're not certain of. And what I mean by that is there might be three manuscripts that have three different readings in a passage, and we're just not sure hmm. which one was the original. We know one of them was. So, uh, but 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 it's a very very low mm -hmm. uh, amount that uh, we're not we're not certain of. Yeah, and translations are usually pretty open about that. With say John seven fifty three to eight eleven or end of Mark. Yeah, they'll have uh, footnotes in the margin usually. Yeah, like the end of Mark, it'll say, you know, many early manuscripts don't don't have this last section of Mark, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so translations will um, tell you this, and they'll even tell you when there's smaller uh, uh, variants, when they're significant. They'll have that in the margins too. I would have encourage all Christians to have a Bible with margins that has uh, uh, scripture references and also can contain footnotes like that. I really think Christians need that. The biblical line in the sand Machen draws between supernaturalism and naturalism, between true Christianity and its counterfeits, never fails to strike a nerve. If the story of the Bible is supernatural, it opens the door to a transcendent and imminent authority, a God who both reveals himself to us and communes with us. I asked Dr. Beale why it is so important for Christians to cling to the historicity of the Bible along with their experience of Christ. Because uh, true Christian faith is not rooted in experience alone. True Christian faith is trusting in a historical, a true historical event of mm. Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And uh, when one does that, then the Holy Spirit is sent to a person's heart, and they begin to have what we call Christian experience, and they trust that Christ died for them, and uh, that they're justified um, with the righteousness of Christ, and also with uh, the fact that uh, he took the penalty of their sin. And so um, uh, that that's true Christian experience. You cut you cut the, the Bible out that's the record of those events, you, you have no object to mm. put your trust in. Experience mm. then becomes very subjective. Mm -hmm. And uh, what you may think is true experience, I may think is different if it's not based on an unalterable fact. So uh, I, I once heard a, uh, a parable, I don't, I don't think it's true, but if you, uh, if let's say one of your children awoke in the night and uh, you called the doctor and the doctor said, this could be fatal if you don't get to the all night pharmacy and get these pills. And um, so you go, you're sincere, you get those pills, you come back, you give them to your child and your child dies. What was the problem? Certainly wasn't a lack of sincerity on your part uh, for your child to be saved through these pills, but it was because the druggist made a mistake. Mm -hmm. So the object of your faith, unbeknownst to you, was false. And as a result, it led to death. And so oh. the object of the faith is all important, and that's that that that's the key for experience. You have to have both uh, mm -hmm. event. Uh, and explanation of the meaning of that event by the Bible, which Machen calls doctrine in his chapter on doctrine. Uh, and then that has to be connected to your Christian experience, that is, of, of, of believing and trusting in the Lord, repenting, and, uh, and then uh, as a result of the Holy Spirit's work, and then that Holy Spirit continues to work in one as a result of um, definitive uh, 
definitive work of the spirit and separating one from the world. Mm. So, so being in favor of the life of the mind doesn't mean that we're entirely against Christian experience. No, not at all. It seems like a lot of people will pit those two against each other, but I think it's it's because you have so many examples of people who simply trust in the subjective Christian experience at the expense of considering the historical objective realities of the gospel. Well, and I think sometimes you get in seminaries this emphasis sometimes, let's be practical, let's be practical, let's pay attention to people's needs and their experiences. And that's not wrong, but what happens is there becomes such an emphasis and a focus sometimes, I think, that um, what begins to fade uh, is the importance of the death, life, death, and resurrection of Christ, mm -hmm. and the importance mm -hmm. of doctrine, the events of redemptive history and their meaning. Mm -hmm. Those two have always got to be kept together. Machen's rationale for preserving this experience of the real historical Jesus is never more apparent than in this clip from the audiobook. Christian experience, we've just said, is useful as confirming the gospel message. But because it is necessary, many men have jumped to the conclusion that it is all that is necessary. Having a present experience of Christ in the heart, may we not, it is said, hold that experience no matter what history may tell us as to the events of the first Easter morning? May we not make ourselves altogether independent of the results of biblical criticism? No matter what sort of man history may tell us Jesus of Nazareth actually was, no matter what history may say about the real meaning of his death or about the story of his alleged resurrection, may we not continue to experience the presence of Christ in our souls? The trouble is that the experience thus maintained is not Christian experience. Religious experience it may be, but Christian experience it certainly is not. For Christian experience depends absolutely upon an event. Yeah, very, very well said. I, I, I would say that in my own experience, I, I think it's a very subjective thing to think about your death. Okay, I mean, that's very subjective. Uh, it's uh, an experience to think about mm -hmm. that. And when I think about it, my only hope is not in some way uh, finding meaning in something else. My only hope is knowing is there there's someone who's paved the way, mm. someone who's actually not only died, but has risen. Yeah. And uh, that, uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, and actually in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as well, uh, that is the only hope that we have. Otherwise, mm -hmm. our faith is in vain. Our experience is in vain then. And uh, so that, that uh, I fall back on that again and again and again, that there is a man who actually defeated death mm -hmm. and came to life again. And we can face death uh, as a lion that's attempting to devour us. Yeah, we'll be devoured, our body, but we'll, we'll, um, we'll overcome it. Amen. Now, as Machen is fighting against, really, these liberal tendencies of prizing Christian experience over the historicity of the Bible, how does that disagreement fundamentally differ from, say, when a Baptist and a Presbyterian might disagree on how we interpret the Bible, whether over baptism or church government? Why are the stakes so high when it comes to this difference between Christianity and liberalism? Well, because, again, um, we're, we're talking about the difference between uh, salvation and final judgment. Mm. Um, if, uh, if you don't believe in supernatural religion, that is, not just that Jesus did miracles. Of course, many uh, a lot of his miracles pointed to his resurrection, like the rising, raising of Lazarus, mm -hmm. and raising of, of other uh, dead people. But the fact that he overcame death, 
there's no other way to overcome death unless you identify, come into union with Jesus Christ while you're living and you stay in that union. Mm-hmm. It's irreversible, by the way, if it's a true union. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so that's <laughs> that's crucial. Now, when we're uh, and, and this often happens I, because I have many friends who are Reformed Baptists just, just talking about it the other day. Uh, infant baptism and, and uh, credo or believer's baptism. And, but we're very, very, in this particular instance, very close brothers. And um, um, that's, that's a matter of uh, an interpretation of uh, a particular doctrine, but it's not about whether uh, the Bible uh, and the, the events recorded in it are supernatural. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, or not. Mm. So we're not, we're, we're, we're talking here about judgment and salvation. We're not talking about that when we're debating uh, baptism. Though I must confess that in uh, past years, uh, when I've seen some people debating it, you would have thought it was about <laughs> salvation. <and> salvation. <laughs> yeah, we're so quick to turn secondary and tertiary issues into salvific issues. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting about this chapter on the Bible is the fact that he does mention the doctrine of plenary inspiration. Yeah. Um, can can you talk a little bit about the controversy over this doctrine? Because I think it's an interesting doctrine that is sort of uh, can land in between being possibly a salvific issue or a secondary issue. And, and I'll explain perhaps a bit more what I mean by that, but can can you talk about the controversy in general? And can you tell us why it's so critical uh, for Christianity that we believe both the concepts in scripture and the words used to communicate those concepts, that they are truly inspired by God? Yeah, and we want to be clear here. I mean, there, the, the debate is, is that, um, uh, for example, here's a beautiful example of concept separated from uh, historical error that the liberal would, would see um, Jesus when he speaks of the book of Isaiah. Uh, he speaks of all three, it's purported three sections. He speaks of all parts of the book of Isaiah, but many people believe that um, uh, Isaiah did not write Isaiah mm-hmm. and that the parts Jesus is quoting and attributing to Isaiah are not from Isaiah. And so they come up with all kinds of reasons that, oh, it's just talking about a literary collection or Jesus actually uh, uh, really believed uh, that Isaiah wrote it when he didn't. He, he just became part of the socially constructed Jewish uh, mentality at that point who also mm-hmm. believed that. Or he, he, uh, he did realize that Isaiah didn't write it, but he accommodated himself to the Jews. There are a lot of ways that people try to um, talk about uh, how um, Jesus quotes Isaiah, and uh, it's really not true that Isaiah wrote that book. So it's really ultimately one way or another. However, liberals try to uh, um, uh, take it, it's it's an error. But what he's saying about Isaiah is true. That, that, that doctrine, mm-hmm. that concept is true. So that would be a good example of, and and there there are evangelical Christians that take that view, um, and that that you know where Jesus is wrong on a historical fact like Isaiah, but let's not get caught into hit, uh, giving Jesus an A, a B, or a C on his history lessons. What's he saying about Isaiah? What's the message? So that would be a good example of uh, separating a historical fact from. Um, the, the message, just as Jesus attributes the whole first five books of the Bible to Moses, and, and a, a number of even evangelicals don't believe that all five books are uh, from Moses. Hmm. So, um, so yeah, I think that's a, a good example. Yeah. Now, when when you say that, I imagine that a lot of hearers would balk. Can someone who doesn't hold to the plenary inspiration or verbal plenary inspiration, as is a common way of putting it, 
today really be a Christian? Can somebody really be a Christian if they don't hold to plenary inspiration? Yeah. Um, of course. Mations says so. So it must be true. <laughs> but yes, of course. Yes. I mean, you can be a Christian as long as you believe that the uh, key thing is, did Christ die for uh, your, your sin? And uh, did he come to life again as the Lord God of heaven and earth? Uh, have you put your trust in that? And if you have, then uh, you believe in supernatural religion, even though you're denying part of it. That yeah. is, the Bible is fully inspired. Right. This tracks with what Machen says later in this chapter on the Bible. It must be admitted that there are many Christians who do not accept the doctrine of plenary inspiration. That doctrine is denied not only by liberal opponents of Christianity, but also by many true Christian men. There are many Christian men in the modern church who find in the origin of Christianity no mere product of evolution, but a real entrance of the creative power of God, who depend for their salvation not at all upon their own efforts to lead the Christ life, but upon the atoning blood of Christ. There are many men in the modern church who thus accept the central message of the Bible, and yet believe that the message has come to us merely on the authority of trustworthy witnesses unaided in their literary work by any supernatural guidance of the Spirit of God. There are many who believe that the Bible is right at the central point in its account of the redeeming work of Christ, and yet believe that it contains many errors. Such men are not really liberals, but Christians, because they have accepted as true the message upon which Christianity depends— a great gulf separates them from those who reject the supernatural act of God with which Christianity stands or falls. Greg, you did your your studies, your PhD studies overseas. You went to right. Cambridge. Yes. Um, now, when you were there, yeah. I'm sure you had many friends who would fall in that category. And it's interesting that Machen went to Germany to do his uh, his later studies. Yeah. And what he saw there, I think, was that there are genuine Christian men who do not affirm what we would define as yeah. inerrancy. Yes. Yes. And, and we, you and I are part of uh, academic societies uh, in which there are evangelicals and all of them. And, and, and we know some who, who don't believe in inerrancy. Mm. And in fact, <laughs> they're, they're a bit emotive. Uh, I think it's an American phenomenon, mm -hmm. and um, they, they, they think it's, you shouldn't explain uh, your view of Scripture with a negative inerrancy, mm -hmm. not, uh, you know, without error. So, um, so that's exactly right, but they're, they're, they're believers, and many of them are very good interpreters, good exegetes, good biblical theologians, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, it's a... Uh, yeah. Machen's right there. I like what he said. In a previous episode, we talked with Peter Lilback about the inerrancy controversy at Westminster Theological Seminary 20 years ago, events that had a major influence on Dr. Beale's time at the seminary and on his writing. Yes, of course, I was not there at the time. So um, someone like Peter Lilback or uh, David Garner, someone like that could say, talk about the actual application of Machen. I can make some uh, speculations on that. I myself at the time uh, was writing against some of these faculty members. And um, that was when you were at Wheaton. Is that right? That's when I was at Wheaton uh, College Graduate School. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, I gathered a lot of that up together, together with other things, and put it in a book called The Erosion of uh, uh, Inerrancy in Evangelicalism. And, I love uh, that book. And basically, it was, at least half of it, was recounting uh, my interaction with uh, the leader of that movement named Peter Enns. And um, so, you, so really, it was not... If you ask people in that movement, whether students or faculty, and there are more than just one faculty member, mm -hmm. um, if you ask them, 
were they denying inerrancy? They would say, no, we believe the whole Bible is inerrant. But for example, what they would do is, is go to the Old Testament and um, the, the chapters one all the way to uh, 11 and further really on into the patriarchs, they would say is not real history. There is a core there that's real. For example, the Exodus is it's a it's a true account, but um, uh, Peter N said it's 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 like a painting, and paintings, you know, some are like medical paintings; they're very very clear cut, and and then you begin to get impressionism, this little fuzziness, and ultimately you could go all the way to the Dada movement and to paintings where you're just sprinkling paint on the canvas and you can't tell what's there. And so N said, we're somewhere in between there. Uh, we're sort of in the middle. It's kind of like a painting in the middle there on the spectrum. And it's can't be sure exactly what happened. We know that, and I'm recalling this, we know that Israel came out of Egypt at that time. And I, I think that, that that's at least one of the things he could, uh, gather from that. But uh, basically, they would see uh, many of the events in Genesis, for example, as like a parable, like when Jesus spoke parables, he was not recounting history. He was making up a story that had a theological or spiritual truth. And so they would say, that's what's going on. These are more, a little bit more. Yeah, there's a core of history, but they're more like parables and they're inerrant, just mm -hmm. like Jesus' parables are inerrant. So it was a debate about the genre. What kind of writing is mm -hmm. the book of Genesis and uh, the Pentateuch and Exodus? And um, they were really trying to redefine that and still hold their view of inerrancy. But ultimately, I think Machen, if, if he were there at the time, he'd say, what good is a book uh, that's not rooted in history? Mm. Uh, because there's so much in, in, in Genesis that's crucial, including the historicity of Adam, for example, and uh, the historicity of the flood, for example, and of Noah's Ark. Um, so um, things which are seen by the New Testament as as typological. So, so I think that's important. They were really trying to uh, give a little different twist to the kind of literature, for example, that Genesis was, and still hold to inerrancy. Because mm. we certainly would say Jesus' parables were inerrant, and so were these. They would say it's, it's the purpose of the author. You have to get the author's intention, and then define inerrancy from there. Jesus' intention was not to record history. And if Moses' intention was not to record history, then what he says is inerrant. Now, mm -hmm. there was another problem, however, very quickly, and that was uh, um, Peter Enns and others focused on the New Testament use of the Old Testament, and they believed that the New Testament writers uh, often uh, took scripture quotations out of context and uh, that they um, gave them a different meaning, a meaning not in line with its original meaning. I would mm -hmm. say and they twisted the meaning and they would say, but this was not uncommon. This is the way Jews would interpret scripture. Uh, they would interpret atomistically or um, midrashically, which means out of context. Um, and, 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 and sometimes they would feel they were so overcome by the spirit that the spirit would give them a meaning of a text that wasn't in the original. And they would compare that sometimes with a Qumran um, uh, interpretation of scripture, a Ra's interpretation of scripture, mm -hmm. as uh, that they would call it, where uh, uh, um, the leader of the community felt like he was delving into the mysteries of scripture and, and gaining the truth out of them, even if it wasn't in line with the original meaning. So. Mm -hmm. um, so basically what they, he was arguing and others, mm -hmm. they preached the right doctrine from the wrong text. Doctrines mm -hmm. inspired and inerrant. Here we go again, <laughs> but not the exegetical method, not the interpretive method. So they were wrong in the interpretative method, but right in the conclusion. 
And for example, how in the world could Matthew be right when he says that Jesus entering and coming out of Egypt was a fulfillment of what the prophet said in Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt have I called my son. That was not a prophecy. That's just a recounting of Israel coming out of Egypt. Matthew would have failed his uh, uh, Bible 101 course because that's a historical genre there. It's not prophecy. So that would be a good example of that. And there were some, some known scholars who uh, um, felt that that was a problem for inerrancy, that passage in Matthew 2, 15. So I probably said too much on it, but no, I would direct great. people to my uh, erosion of inerrancy and evangelicalism. Yeah, I remember reading, I think it was in that very book where you spoke of uh, the Old Testament text that people, that the authors of scripture would quote and then expound on a reply and it was like picking an apple from the apple tree. They may cut it up and slice it a certain way and present it differently, or they may put in a blender and give it as applesauce. But <laughs> the original intention or the original meaning of that Old Testament text is present and applied. Yeah. It's still apple. Still apple. Maybe in a different form of the apple, but it's still apple. Yeah. So when you when you pick the apple from the tree and you put it in a, a bowl of other fruit and it's decorative, it's now, its purpose is not for eating, it is for decoration. And so uh, that's a fine use of the apple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so yeah, that's uh, right. New Testament writers can do the same with the Old Testament as long as you still have that organic apple juice there somewhere. Mm. Now, in speaking about Westminster during that time and the denial of inerrancy and different ways of reading the New Testament, use of the old, uh, one of the principles in Machen's book that seems to directly address that, and one that we've returned to again and again in this show, is what Machen describes as the condition of low visibility, that liberals like to fight their intellectual battles under the guise of familiar terminology, but means something completely different by it. So as a scholar who has always engaged mainstream scholarship in your books and commentaries, I wonder, do you detect a condition of low visibility approach in scholarship, or does liberalism approach things differently today? Um, I think it's very similar today. Uh, I think that uh, if a preacher, for example, is really a liberal, or is moving in that direction, um, that um, they're going to use, as Mason well says, traditional biblical and theological terminology, but they'll begin to put a different definition to it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and likewise, um, they're not going to be... Uh, uh, how, how can I say it? A, a, a zealot for getting at the truth uh, of, of, of the Bible. Um, as Machen says, mm. it's kind of funny. He says, he says the person who uh, takes that uh, low visibility posture um, is not going to be um, a fighter for the truth. Mm. Um, they're going to be somebody who's very vague mm -hmm. and, and I would dare say, I would just put this out there, and I could be wrong, but I think the people that believe that the New Testament writers twisted the meaning of the Old Testament, that when they preach that, when preachers preach that, that believe that, mm -hmm. I don't think they're going to be really clear. Hey, everybody in the congregation, look at this. Uh, Matthew made an error, or hey, Jesus made an error, or Hey, they twisted the scripture. Um, I don't think they're going to come out that clearly. Mm. And if they do, it will destroy the congregation's uh, faith in the unity of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And in yeah, fact, if they, continue, if they continue to preach that way anyway, that low visibility over years will begin to rise. And mm. they'll begin to see, I think they'll begin, the congregation will begin to lose their confidence in their Bibles. That's right. Yeah, the gospel they proclaim will be a great suggestion. <laughs> yeah. On yeah. a wise way to live if you want to. Yeah. Now, yeah. Machen does say pretty clearly, the God whom the Christian worships is a God of truth. 
And, you know, you can imagine a matron who is saying that with uh, a sincere faith and conviction. Does that really matter when we're writing, scholars are writing their commentaries or pastors are preparing the sermons or we're working through a Greek exegetical issue? Does it matter that the God whom the Christian worships is a God of truth? I think it matters a lot when you're preparing sermons uh, or when you're writing a commentary or an essay or preparing a lecture or you're preparing a Bible study or a Sunday school. Mm. Um, I, I sometimes forget this. I used to have a little piece of paper that says, pray. When I get into my office, I think it's important to pray. Mm -hmm. that the Lord would guide you in, in your work. And uh, now that I'm sad, I don't have that piece of paper. I need to re resuscitate that piece of paper again. But anyway, I think it's very important because we, we are dealing with a book of truth. Now, when I come to, let's say, two possible interpretations, and, and one would indicate there's an error in the Bible, and the other would still be compatible with the truth of Scripture. Well, I have a presupposition, and everybody has them, whether you're a believer uh, in, in the truth of Scripture or not. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to go with the one that's compatible with the truth of Scripture. Now, the person who has a presupposition uh, that does not affirm inerrancy might quickly go to the other interpretation. So, um, you know, now, of course, there, there, we can't solve all the conundrums of Scripture. You don't have to do that. If we had to do that to believe in inerrancy, I would not uh, believe in inerrancy. There, there are a lot of mysteries, conundrums, uh, interpretive possibilities that I'm not sure about in the Bible. And But I here's the key. I don't think that that makes up uh, the majority of the Bible. I don't think the Bible is a confused mess. Uh, I think I think these are the exception, not the rule. But but I know, but I'm going to be careful about them. I think we need to be very honest with our presuppositions, like being on a golf green, uh, in on on a golf course. And let's say they're not taking care of the green; little weeds grow up in it. And um, uh, some people would go get the greenskeeper and say, "Mow all that stuff down." So I can put my ball straight, but um, use, twisting the analogy a little bit, I think as, as believers of the truth, if we can't solve a problem, leave the weed, leave it there and just put around it. Um, Intellectual honesty. I have found that when that happens, I found students who've gone and done their doctoral work on the weeds and have solved the problem and have legitimately cut the weed down. Hmm. And I give you name and place at this point, but I, I won't do that. That's so fantastic. But I think that's an honest scholarship. And I think as pastors, we need to acknowledge it. I, well, I'm not sure. Calvin thought this, Augustine thought this, uh, and uh, Moorfield thought yet a third thing. I, I'm just, I, I, I'm not sure. Hmm. Hmm. It, it seems like many Christians, when we talk about inerrancy, many Christians today will say, well, I don't need to believe in doctrine or a particular doctrine of inspiration. I just want to come under the authority of Jesus. I want to depend upon Jesus alone. And they make this distinction between the authority of, say, the Bible versus the authority of Jesus. And Machen addresses this idea uh, that really does remain common in and around the church today, and it sounds good and pious at first glance. But why is it important that we don't choose Jesus at the expense of the Bible? Well, first of all, it's not choosing the whole Jesus, <laughs> because there are certain things about Jesus that they don't like, mm -hmm. like all his uh, teachings on judgment, for example. Um, uh, so, uh, in, in fact, they would say, you know, there, there's so many horrible things in the Old Testament. That, that's another version of this. I'm just going to trust in Jesus, who is love and not hate. You know, God tells the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites, uh, men, women, and children. 
and uh, Jesus is not of that ilk. I trust in him. But when it comes to some of his teachings, they don't choose all of the teachings. So they they trust in a selected Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and, and for example, to demarcate, and so I'm trusting Jesus, not the Old Testament, for example. That's such a huge mistake because Jesus himself says that uh, Moses testified uh, about him. And you're not just rejecting me, you're rejecting Moses' word. Hmm. And um, and he, he says, uh, likewise, in, in John 5 and uh, verse 39, that that's uh, leading up to the verse that I just quoted. Um, I want to get the wording right. It says this. You search the scriptures. He's speaking to the Jewish leaders. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's these that bear witness of me. So you can't trust in Jesus and say, well, but I don't trust in the Old Testament. It's God, <laughs> God of wrath. No, again and again and again, Jesus uh, affirms uh, the truth of the Old Testament. John 10, he says, um, uh, the scripture cannot be broken. That is, the Old Testament mm-hmm. scripture cannot be broken. It's a metaphor he uses. What does that mean? Well, you can't break the scripture. It doesn't mean you can't tear it. Uh, but it, what it means is you cannot blunt the truthful force of the scripture. That's mm-hmm. what he means. And um, so, you know, uh, you, you can't separate your trust in Jesus from his comments on judgment, his, his, his belief in the Old Testament, his his belief about the whole plenary inspiration of Scripture, um, yeah. uh, you, you can't you can't do that. It just becomes a very subjective enterprise. That also makes me think of John six, where Jesus speaks about eating his body and drinking his flesh, and the disciples find it hard to take in that teaching. But then Peter says, when all the other disciples were leaving, uh, where would we go? You have the words. Of eternal life that's sort of great combination of looking to jesus and depend upon his authority but also having the very words of eternal life and and you're right at the end of the day it seems that liberals uh like machin even talks about have an authority that claims to be in jesus but really he says their authority is the modern principles that determine their interpretation of jesus Exactly. The subjective Christian consciousness and the Christian experience. and It's a selective day, Jesus. That's mm-hmm. right. At the end of the day, liberals trust in a modernized Jesus of their own making and a Christ that makes them feel less ashamed of being called a Christian. Yeah. And I think, again, you know, we use that word liberal so much as evangelicals. Mm-hmm. And I think it's good for everybody to read Machen's book because there we get a true definition of a liberal. And um, often it's, what do we mean by liberal? And, and I think when we use that as much as possible, uh, without making too many caveats, I think we need to say those who don't believe in the supernaturalness of the Bible, of Jesus and the New Testament. If our ability to trust the Bible is so vital for our faith in the risen Christ, it has to be a battle worth fighting. I asked Greg what advice he would give to listeners who might be struggling with questions about inerrancy or with the influence of liberal theology. Well, first of all, uh, if they are a Christian, they've trusted that Christ died and rose again as as the Lord God of heaven and earth. I think that's the center. then they need to come to Scripture and um, see it as living oracles, living words of God. Uh, like that's what Acts uh, seven thirty eight says. It doesn't, it doesn't say it doesn't have words of God uh, as Romans three two categorizes the Old Testament, but it has living words, living oracles. Mm-hmm. The Bible is the living word of God, and mm-hmm. and it is that which infects us. Mm-hmm. With increasing life, it infects us. They, we, n- nothing else can infect us with the truth of the living God and the Spirit, it, but it infects us, and 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 we catch its life as well, if you will. Yeah, but it's it's the Scripture that is the avenue that God has ordained 
that we know him. And um, it is the only avenue. Yes, we have general revelation, and we can see that there's a God, as Romans 1 says, uh, from nature and that sort of thing. Um, and, and we come into a covenantal relationship, actually, of accountability to God through general revelation, but uh, we don't get the message of salvation, special mm -hmm. revelation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so exactly. I, I would also um, advise them to, to to read a basic book on um, how to interpret the Bible. Mm. And um, what, one book that, that, that's a good one is uh, Seeing Christ in All of Scripture. Mm. Seeing Christ in All of Scripture is published by Westminster Press. has articles in there by Ian Duguid and... Um, uh, Richard Gaffin and others on the faculty. I have an essay in there, but also, uh, and it's it's a short book, so it's really a good one. And at the end, it kind of talks a little bit about the problem of, at Westminster, and um, and then um, another one that I would really recommend to people. It's an old book from the 1950s by J.I. Packer called "Fundamentalism" in quotation marks mm -hmm. and the Word of God. Fundamentalism mm -hmm. and the Word of God. That's an outstanding book written at a very mm -hmm. good level uh, for, for anyone, whether they're uh, a young Christian or uh, older in the faith. It's, uh, it's an outstanding book. So I, I, would encourage, uh, I would encourage that. Yeah, because those crises of faith, as I'm sure you've maybe had different moments uh, where you're unsure about the text or maybe some things... Uh, have caused doubt to creep in. Those are really trying times. Those are crises of faith as we refer to them. And I think it's really important to know the truth, whether it's through books, as you mentioned, which are, those are phenomenal books to read or, or just being even honest with your pastor or being honest with Christian brothers or sisters that you, you can trust uh, and, and know that you won't be deemed a liberal just for asking questions about the faith and come along have someone come alongside of you that's actually genuinely going to help you to trust in the god of the bible i think that i know someone who's having doubts uh, about their faith and and i encourage them just read your bible mm. trust in it read it and trust in it there's i think that's the only thing that can bring you out of that kind of thing that's ultimately right. might not do it uh, immediately but I think uh, reading it, believing it, praying through it, there's something about God's word that mm -hmm. is life-giving. And if that is true, it's going to bring us out of whatever depressions that we ultimately have or out of um, our doubts, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. That's exactly right. This encouragement to trust the Word of God, especially in the face of challenges and doubts, is one articulated beautifully by Machen at the end of the chapter. Here's a clip from the audiobook. The Christian man, on the other hand, finds in the Bible the very Word of God. Let it not be said that dependence upon a book is a dead or an artificial thing. The Reformation of the 16th century was founded upon the authority of the Bible, yet it set the world aflame. Dependence upon a word of man would be slavish, but dependence upon God's word is life. Dark and gloomy would be the world if we were left to our own devices and had no blessed word of God. The Bible to the Christian is not a burdensome law, but the very Magna Carta of Christian liberty. It is no wonder, then, that liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. It bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. Many thanks to my guest, Dr. Greg Beal. Join me next time for my conversation with author and theologian Michael Horton as we discuss Machen's chapter on doctrine. This episode of Christianity and Liberalism was brought to you by Westminster Seminary Press. 
WSP has published a brand new edition of the book this show is based on, Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gressimation. This 100th anniversary edition features a new foreword by Kevin DeYoung and is available to order now at WTSBooks.com. Listeners to this podcast can get a free download of the Christianity and Liberalism audiobook at checkout when you enter the promo code MACHEN23. That's M-A-C-H-E-N 23. This podcast was hosted by David Brionis. The episode was produced by Josh Curry and Jimmy Atkins. Audio captured by Rudolph Gallegos. Edited and engineered by Paul Quorum. Our theme song was written by Timothy Brindle and produced by Nobody Special. Thank you for listening. To demonstrate the two completely different religions Liberalism denies man's wicked condition And divine inspiration with which scripture was written Us Christians are convinced scripture's truly factual But liberalism denies the supernatural Matron's book definitely showed Christianity and liberalism are diametrically opposed It's not a different version of Christianity It has opposite views of God and humanity Often disguised with Christian terminology They baptize the serpent's absurd philosophy. Call you a liberal, it's not just political But rejecting his virgin birth and all of his miracles From trusting in science But against God it's disgusting, defiance Self is your trust and reliance The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis The lamb's dripping wrists Is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell Machen press men to be honest Don't call it Christian if it essentially is godless Christianity's based on events God accomplished Christ was sent to bring redemption he promised Not just an ethical leader, respectable teacher But God in the flesh, yes our blessed redeemer An affront to human pride You can only be saved by faith in Christ who was crucified Amen. Our greatest needs to be redeemed by the Son It's not what would Jesus do but what Jesus has done since we're slaves to doubt, pride, and lust. We're in desperate need of rescue that's outside of us. An understatement to say that we're flawed in need of what Machen called a creative act of God. Cause we're torn by sin, we've been abhorring him. Not just sick but dead, we must be born again. God's enemies, his arrogant opponents, who can only be saved by vicarious atonement. Judgment fell on Christ in my place. Unrighteous, guilty sinners are only righteous by grace. Scriptures, historical acts. They assert in Jesus the God, man, the supernatural person We need new hearts, he's the compassionate surgeon By his death and resurrection, he's smashing the serpent The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis, the lamb's dripping wrists Is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from My hell. intention is to show, and I'll mention in this flow, Machen's words are as useful as a century ago. Uh-huh. Liberalism breeds destruction, it's hopeless. Today it's deconstruction and wokeness. Rooted in paganism, atheism, like Satan's mission to make CRT state religion. These abominations we see to this day in denominations like the PC USA. Why embrace Machen's great wisdom in light of the claims of his racism? In 1913, Machen wrote Mom complaining. Angry about Princeton's campus integration I can't believe the decision of Warfield But this cancer of heart, I'm sure the Lord healed See, Warfield became Machen's mentor An instrument for Machen to repent more Showing his need of the Savior to change him But consider the Lord's grace of sanctification Machen became friends with an African-American named Charlie Machen Gladly had cherished him As a matter of fact, Charlie had a cataract Skin color didn't matter as 
his mage and had his back Paid for the operation, stayed with him in the hospital Christ changing mage not an impossible obstacle From his love for his friend Charlie It's quite clear Christ was changing mage partly Any bigotry left, it's not there any longer Perfected now in the presence of his father The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis The lamb's dripping wrists Is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell